So it's good to be back. I want to just give us a brief, uh, brief recap, and then we're going to jump right into the text here. Um, Kyleo last week took us through the middle section of Hebrews chapter 9. And this particular chapter, as we're walking our way through the book of Hebrews, is specifically geared towards the blood of Christ. We've been learning a lot about the blood of Christ. And we've been learning a lot about the fact that Jesus' salvation towards us, his redemptive work at the cross, was a messy business. It was one that took his life, it took all of his blood to cover the sins of the world. And as we've been walking our way through that in this chapter, there's been a couple very big things that have been reinforced for us. One, historically, we have to remember the old covenant always required blood. The blood was something that Christ or that God had put in to the process of the sacrificial system from the beginning of his work with his people. That there was always going to require blood for the payment of sin, or the remission of sins. And in the Old Testament, it was a messy business. Being a priest was a messy business. They had to deal with a lot of blood. They had to, uh, even last couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it was sprinkled everywhere. This gorgeous temple that had been built had blood kind of sprinkled all over the inside of it. Gold plating, but covered in blood. So this whole talk and walk through the blood of Christ, what we're seeing here, and this is the pivotal place, not only in the text of Hebrews, but in the history of the world. This is the crux of God's relationship to sin and his people, is the blood of Christ. And how his blood is different than all the blood that had gone before, that was taking care of external payments for the people. So we've talked even through Hebrews how Jesus is greater than, right? That is the the main focus of this particular letter is that Jesus is greater than anything that has gone before him or anything that will come after he was here on this earth. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the, the priesthood. He's just greater than anything you put on the other side of that equation. And this text, and particularly a couple of verses we're going to think of, look at today, take that truth and drive it home to the bottom. It is the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Without it, there is no eternal redemption. It's the only thing, Scripture says, that will save you and me. That sounds incredibly exclusive, right? Like, exclusive things are not super popular in today's world. But this declaration from Scripture is clear, it is not confusing, and it is definitive. The blood of Christ is the only thing that secures eternal salvation. As we look at these verses, Kyleo wrapped up uh, one, one of his points last week was that the blood of Adam and, and the blood of the Old Covenant, right, the blood of Adam and the Old Covenant will expire. And as we know throughout history, it did continually expire, right? Continually had to be renewed. Continually had to be gone back to. Continually had to be redone. The blood of the Old Covenant. But Jesus' blood, and this is a good Kyleo quote, right? Adam's blood will expire, but Jesus' blood will never retire. Nice little spin to it, right? I like that one. Jesus' blood will never retire. 
Jesus' blood does not stop, and that word retire, right? Does not stop working. Never stops working. We can apply this, and and I don't have time today because we've got some text to get into, but we can apply this to our cultural perspective of just waiting to retire and sit back and enjoy life. That is not the way that God works. You might stop one particular vocation, but God doesn't give you the authority to stop working on his behalf. Jesus' blood never retires. It never stops working. It is effective, it is all-sufficient, it's final, and it is ongoing. The blood of Christ. So let's look at some of the verses we've got today, and we're going to walk our way through these verses, these, these six verses, and then we're going to take a look at a couple other texts that drive, drive us to the, uh, the last couple verses here, 27 and 28. Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 23. So look at the text with me. Let's be in it. Let's walk our way through it. It says, thus it was necessary. Thus meaning what? Thus all this stuff we've been talking about, the first part of this chapter and beyond. The blood of Christ being greater than any blood that had gone before it, everything being purified by it from sin. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So verse 23 here is kind of like wrapping up the previous discussion, the previous argument that's been presented to us. That it was necessary in the Old Covenant for all the earthly things to be cleansed by the rituals, the the process that God had put before them of the sacrificial system. Because without that, that incredibly messy work. Remember we're talking about Outside the temple, there was animals being killed all the time. There was blood being let out of them. There was then that blood being taken into the temple and being sprinkled on everything. And then even as the high priest gets to the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement, the one time a year he gets to enter into that, he is going in there sprinkling blood everywhere with the hyssop, right? It's a messy scenario. But it's necessary because if we didn't, if they didn't see actual blood constantly covering over the earthly external problems with their sin, they'd forget, right? That's why God instituted the system he did. A constant reminder. A constant calling back. That when you've wronged God, something has to happen. So this verse says it's necessary, the copies of heavenly things. Remember, we've used this, the the, the author has used this constantly, this shadow analogy, right? So the old covenant is a shadow, it's a copy, it's it's a facsimile of it, if we even know what facsimiles are anymore. I did recently have somebody ask me to fax them something. I was like, really? Um, Can I take a picture of it and send it to you? I don't... I don't have a fax machine anymore. Uh, but I did find a little app that you can take a picture and then fax something to someone, which helped me out. But I don't know why people still use it. But it's, it's a fake, right? Like even when you do fax something, you ever on the receiving end of a fax, it's not super clear, right? It's kind of like, ah, that's not an original. That's what we're talking about here. A copy, a shadow, a facsimile, a, 
not quite the original. Not as good as the genuine thing. It was necessary for those copies of heavenly things to be purified by these rites. And by rites, he's talking about the actual system of the old covenant. The sacrificial system. But, so in contrast here, but the heavenly thing themselves with better sacrifices than these, than the old. This again is another statement, another reiteration. Jesus is better than the old. Remember the problem, one of the problems, and the author is addressing multiple things here that God's given him to address in this book, but one of the, one of the issues he's addressing is this. Jewish people had come into the family of God by believing in Christ, but they were so used to the old rituals and rites, the old system, that in some ways, we're talking first century here, they haven't been going on that long even since Christ's death, but they were reverting back to them. They were going back. Why? Because frankly, Something you've been doing your whole life and something that's earthly and maybe makes a little more sense to you is easy to go back to. It's easy to revert. If we're honest, we are not that different than these Jewish people, these Hebrews that he's writing to. We revert all the time to stuff. We revert to sinful sinful patterns. We revert to ways that our flesh naturally wants to respond and act all the time. We revert all the time to earthly, temporal things. And what God's reminding us here is this. That constant weight of figuring out every single step you needed to take in order to be purified under the old system because you kept reverting back to sin, don't go back to that. And as we look in a minute here, one of the verses is going to call us to this. Don't Go back. Christ's death is a once-for-all payment. It calls you out of the old and into the new. Verse 24. Christ has entered into the holy places with the, with hand, made with hands, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So if you're a note taker and you've got your journal maybe in front of you or maybe you're just writing notes, this is one of the things in this particular passage where you want to highlight. Maybe underline, maybe star, whatever, you, however you're doing it. There are a bunch of contrasts pulled in these first couple verses. Okay? Copies of heavenly things and actual heavenly things in verse 23. In verse 24, holy places made with human hands, which are copies of true things. And then the contrast of that, Christ is not there in a place is made with human hands. He is in heaven. Heaven itself appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. This is a hugely significant theological understanding in this sentence. Christ exists in heaven appearing before the Father On whose behalf? Ours. Think about that for just a second. Take a pause. Our behalf. Jesus Christ 
a member of the Godhead, the Trinity, who put on flesh and came to this earth, who suffered and died for your salvation and mine, then, after his victorious resurrection, ascends into heaven and is appearing. The, the tense here is a presence. Now to appear. Right this moment, while you and I sit in this room, and we think about, because we're talking about sacrifices and blood and redemption, hopefully you've thought a little bit about your sin, even already. Right this moment, while we're confronted with our sin and our need for salvation, Jesus stands before the Father on our behalf. What a better deal than you and I having to show up and stand there on our own. I guarantee you this, you and I, none of us want to stand before the Father in heaven without the blood of Christ over us. Nobody wants to be in that scenario. Because without the blood of Christ washed over you, taking you as white as snow, Scripture says, without that, you stand before the Father and your sin is on the surface. It's in front of you. But think about this truth. Let this kind of just sink in. Jesus Christ humbled himself to die for your sin and mine. And now... He stands before the Father saying, I've paid for that. On our behalf. On our behalf. He stands in front of the Father. One day, look at this in a minute, we will all stand for judgment. And the only thing that will be important at that point, one thing will be important to you. I guarantee this. When you stand in judgment before God in heaven, there will be one thing that matters. And it's that Jesus paid for your sin. It won't matter how popular you were in this world. It won't matter how much stuff you got. It won't matter how much money you made. None of that will matter. It won't matter how much pleasure you took in in this world. Because when you stand before God, you won't be thinking about that stuff. You'll be thinking about one thing. I am unworthy to be in the presence of God apart from the blood of Christ who has declared me righteous. It's the only thing that will matter. Nothing else will matter. In the complexity of understanding that theological truth that right now Jesus stands before the Father on our behalf and one day when we have to stand there, he will be in front of us. The importance of that theological truth is this. We are called to live today knowing that that's our reality. Every day. We're supposed to live like we're in heaven even though we're not there yet. That means for those who have placed their faith in Christ and been made new in Him, that is the single most important thing in your life. And we should live that way. Our future eternal reality should affect our earthly temporary days. 
because it's so much more important than whatever it is we get wrapped up in. Jesus is in heaven himself appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. That should help you sleep at night. That should help you get up in the morning. It should help you keep going through days that are hard, weeks, months that are hard. This truth changes everything. The better high priest stands in the presence of God on your behalf and mine. Not a temporary one. Not an earthly high priest who has to go back in later. Who has to purify himself again and then get back in there. Not that. The better high priest whose sacrifice and blood covers sin once for all. We're also introduced in verse 24 here. I want you to make a note on this one word, appear. You'll see this. The author uses this three times in this section of verses. Okay? But there are three different appearings. They're not all the same. Three appearings for different things. This one is Christ appearing on our behalf. In front of the Father. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Now it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. Jesus doesn't go into the heavenly places in front of the Father in heaven and offer himself over and over and over for your sin. This is a major fallacy. This is also one that Somewhat common in false teaching. Jesus' payment for your sin and mine and the sin of the world was once for all and completely sufficient. He doesn't got to keep going back to that well. Jesus doesn't re-suffer every time you sin. His suffering was good enough the one time. For all time. Verse 25 again, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. Verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Christ doesn't suffer every time you sin. He'd have been doing this since the foundation of the world, repeat over and over and over and over and over and over. He does, that's not the way it works. That's why the old covenant works. The new covenant, think about this. I have no idea. I actually looked up. I tried to do some research to see if anybody had ever had a whole bunch of free time on their hands and tried to calculate how many sacrifices might have been made in the Old Covenant. I could not find the answer. Okay? I mean, you have to have a lot of free time to figure that one out, right? But we're talking about millions of sacrifices. At least. I, tried to, I wanted to get a real number for you. I couldn't get it. But be impressed enough with millions, okay? Millions of times that the people of God had to go back and sacrifice more and more and more. And then Jesus comes and think about the earth-shattering reality of him standing up and saying, I am going to die one time for all of it. That's it. One time for all time. It's a, it's a monumental shift. 
Don't let anybody in your life or anybody in this world start to try to convince you that Christianity is insignificant. Our calendar is actually set by this particular appointment. Jesus' life and death changed the way that we keep track of everything. You understand that? Everything. The date. Every day when you maybe write down the date or look at what day it is, is a constant reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection. The whole world, whether people recognize it or not, is governed by this truth. Everything. The only difference is, are we going to live under that reality or are we going to fight it? The reality is, Jesus' death and sufficient sacrifice is the complete axis on which all of time turns. It's that significant. We water it down all the time or think it's maybe like really nice thing that happened, right? It's not. It's the only thing that ever happened that mattered. The only thing. Why? Because God values life. And Jesus' death saves life. He says, verse 26 again, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, that's not true. He doesn't suffer repeatedly. As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's that word again. He has appeared. Second time, just in a couple verses here, the author uses this appearing. Now, it's a different appearing than the first one. The first one is Christ appearing in heaven before the Father on our behalf. This one is he has appeared on this earth one time for all time. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27. Just as it was, is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. This is one of the most unpopular verses in the Bible. We are here this morning to remind ourselves that you only get one shot at this. One opportunity in this life. To choose to receive the blood of Christ purifying you from sin and giving you new life. Because once you die, there's no reduce. You don't get to say, oh, let's run it back. I, didn't, I missed that. I'll get it next time. Reincarnation is a fallacy, in case you were wondering. There's no second chances on this. And the reality is this. For many of us, it becomes increasingly aware, and I was talking this morning, Kelly and I were talking this morning, as you get older, you start to become more and more aware that while I'm getting older, people around me are getting older. And even though I don't view myself as very old, there's a little bit where you start to realize I'm not necessarily on the younger end anymore. Maybe I'm on the younger end of something, but 
this starts to become a reality when you start to let things set in. When you experience more death. You get older, people around you get older. The people that are older than you, while you're getting older, they're getting older. And they're not going to be around forever. It is appointed to man once to die. And we are all on that same road. There's a common quote I use if I do a funeral. I've heard other people use it at funerals as well. None of us are getting out of this life alive. We're not. You have to live with that being a reality. To not do so is unwise and very short-sighted. And the reality is also this. We don't have any idea how many days we have. You have no idea. Tragedy could strike at any moment. Accidents happen. Health gives out. You don't, have, you don't know you have tomorrow. The reality of knowing what Christ has done for you is this reality. Don't wait. Don't wait to believe it. And don't wait to live it. Because you don't know. We may not have the rest of today. We have no clue. I've had the experiences over the last couple years, people close to me being gone quickly without any forenotice. And we have no idea. Scripture reminds us we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Live for Jesus today. And when you wake up tomorrow, live for Jesus that day. And when you wake up the next day, live for Jesus that day. Why? Because you, you don't have any idea how many days you have. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Neither am I. So these truths should affect us. That's why this verse is so important. Verse 27, just as it's appointed for man once to die... And after that comes the judgment. Here's the reality. Reincarnation is not true. I'll give you another reality. Purgatory, some sort of holding pattern where you can work your way out of your previous mess, that's a lie. It doesn't exist. God is clear enough to say this in one sentence. Not some overly verbose Thing that can get confluted and all this stuff. No, he says it real clear here. You die once, then the judgment. That's it. Right? He's boiling it down for us. That's all there is. There is this life. Only what you've done for Christ will last. And then there's the judgment. That's all there is. You don't get to stand before God and say, I, I know eh, it was okay, but can I go back and redo some stuff? I have another shot at that? No. There's no second shot at life. Now that can be an incredibly daunting, maybe even depressing idea. Apart from the fact that the blood of Christ secures you for eternity after that. You die once, then the judgment. And if the blood of Christ has washed over you and made new in Him, you get to live forever in the presence of God with no sin. No hurt, no pain, no loss, no death, no tears, no mourning. That's eternity. 
The reality is we got to live this little blip on this radar. However many years we get with the eternal reality in mind. Because we get one shot to live in this life for Christ. And then you live for eternity based upon whether you believed or didn't. Whether you allowed the blood of Christ to wash over you or you didn't. Verse 27. Just as appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Verse 28. So, so like that, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Why? Why is he going to come again to deal with sin? Because he already dealt with sin. It's all over, folks. God dealt with sin through his son. That part is done. Jesus is coming back again. But it won't be for the reason he came the first time. And the results will not be the same the second time when he comes. Revelation lays out for us what that is going to look like. Jesus is going to come back the second time and he's not going to come back the same. He's coming back the second time to clear the slates. To separate those who believe to eternal life and those who don't to eternal damnation. And that is not a popular topic we like to talk about, but that is reality, folks. Hell's a real thing. It's a real place. And unfortunately, people are going to go there. It's our job to take as many over to the other side as we possibly can. That's why these verses are so important. Because not only do you have one shot in this life to believe and then the judgment, but the person sitting next to you almost only got one shot in this life too. There's no reduce. The person that lives in the house next to you, they've only got this life. They don't have another one. You don't know how many days they have either. This reality of knowing who God is and what he's done through Jesus and what his blood secures for us for eternity should be the one singular understanding that forces us out into our world telling everybody we can about Jesus. Everybody, because we don't have any idea. You walk past somebody on the street, they might not make it down to the next block. You have no idea. You might not have tomorrow to talk with the people you work with. They might not have tomorrow for you to tell them about Jesus. This creates for us a sense of urgency because God is graciously reminding us of the truth. And the truth confronts us and pushes us into the call that God's given us. Verse 28 again, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, no, that's done, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that what your life looks like? Is that what your heart looks like? Are you eagerly waiting 
for Jesus to come back again. This idea of being eagerly waiting is that that anxiety, that little tension where you're living towards something and you're thinking towards something and the only thing that's really going to satisfy you is when you see it. This happens in little ways for us all the time, right? Think about what you care about a lot. I think a couple years back, right? For many of us. The Eagles won out through the playoffs and made it into the Super Bowl. But there's that two-week period, right? You could feel it in this city. There was this anxiety about it until they got to watch the game. And then they won. See, just like that, only way better, (laughs) is when you wait for Jesus to reveal himself again then when he comes, you're not afraid, you're not scared, you're not complacent. You are overwhelmed with joy because the thing you have been living for then becomes a reality. We're meant to live for something different than we did before we knew Christ. We're meant to live for eternity. We're meant to wait for eternity. We're meant to be Anxious about getting to eternity. We're meant to live in this tension right now. Where we're here, but our souls are not. And we live that way. Secured by the blood of Christ forever. And when Christ comes a second time, it's not going to be like, wow, I'm glad he's here. It's going to be way more than that. Because when you eagerly anticipate something and it takes up every day, you're living towards that, when it eventually arrives, it is overjoyous. It's overwhelming. That's what it will be like for those who eagerly await him when he comes again. It's not going to be like, man, I'm glad he's here. It's going to be like, oh, my life now start without the encumbrance of all the sin and brokenness and mourning and shame that sin brings. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin because that's already done but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Three specific points of appearing in this text walk through them right now because they bring three specific truths to us. First, verse 26. Jesus appeared to put away sin. Once for all, he appeared to put away sin. We use some terms that may be a little more familiar to you. He appeared to deliver us from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin has been dealt with once for all. Christ's blood secures us from having to die for our own sin. The penalty of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ appeared in verse 26 to put away sin to save us from the penalty of it. Verse 24 
Christ currently appears in heaven for us. He has removed the power of sin from our lives. He has already saved us from the penalty of sin. And currently He has delivered us from the power of sin. Because the power of sin enslaves you, right? If Jesus hadn't done what He had done and was not standing before the Father on our behalf in heaven, we would still be owned by our flesh. We'd still be a slave to sin. He has delivered us from the penalty of sin. He has delivered us from the power of sin. And then the third appearing in this text in verse 28, He will appear to take us to glory. Eventually, Christ will appear again to deliver us from the very presence of sin. Christ's sacrifice of blood that washes over us is totally sufficient to cleanse us and free us from the penalty of sin to move us forward and move us out from under the power of sin and eventually to deliver us from the very presence of sin itself. Because sin is what wrecks us, folks. It's why we can't make sense of things. It's why we do things we don't want to do, right? Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is like, sounds schizophrenic in there. Keep doing what I don't want to do. I can't do what I'm supposed to do. This is a mess. Why? Because sin is still present. But one day, when Christ comes again, he'll take us out of the very presence of sin forever. It'll no longer hinder us. It'll no longer weigh on us. It'll no longer cloud our thinking and our judgment and our sight. It'll no longer confuse us about what we're living for. One day, Christ is going to come back again and all that's going to be gone. And if we don't die and get to him before that, that'll be the day that sets us completely free. Three different appearings in this text. But he covers how Jesus has defeated the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Verse 28. To wrap up, what is this eager awaiting? How did that mean something and was so significant for the Hebrews that were reading and listening to this? Think about it this way. In the previous covenant, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, the people waited expectantly for him to reemerge, to come out. But there was some anxiety there. Did he purify himself, truly? Did he take care of what he needed? Did he stick to the, the rites and the rituals that God had called him to? Outwardly purifying himself, washing him rightly, confessing his sin. When he got right up to the edge of the Holy of Holies, did he take care of the the incense offering that was the last thing? Did he walk in? Did he sprinkle the blood rightly around the Holy of Holies, which was his one opportunity that year to take care of things for him and for the people? Did he do all that right? Because the people were outside waiting. And you know what happened when the high priest came back out? You know what followed the Day of Atonement in the nation of Israel? Anybody? A feast, a party. It wasn't just like, whew, glad that's over with. It was, he reemerged. They were all standing outside waiting. Uh, if he doesn't come out, we're all in trouble. Our sins aren't paid for. 
If he doesn't come out, not only does it mean Christ didn't accept his offering and took him, but it means he wasn't able to pay and make right the sins of the rest of us. The people are standing outside waiting for him to come. Well, how? Eagerly anticipating his reemerging from the Holy of Holies. That's the picture of Christ coming back again, because where is Christ now? He is in the most holy place. He's in the throne room of the king. He's standing on our behalf. And we should be just like the, the Jews of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, eagerly anticipating, eagerly awaiting his second coming. When he comes again, we know, that's it. We're out of here. Sin's gone. We don't have to deal with it anymore. I'm not going to have to bury anybody else. I'm not going to have to fight every day to stay away from the flesh and give my life to the Spirit. When he comes again, that's going to be it, folks. And guess what happens when we get to heaven with him? Just like the shadowy things of the old covenant, when the high priest reemerged, they threw a party. What happens when we get to heaven? The great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven's going to be a party, folks. It's going to be the party of all parties because we won't have the encumbrances that keep our parties kind of like dulled down. It is going to be a feast of epic proportions because the great high priest has reemerged and all those who are eagerly waiting for him are going with him. What joy we will have when he comes again. The song that we just sang before our time digging into the text, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I mean, that, that's it. That's the whole deal, folks. You don't have to wonder if the high priest is going to emerge from the inner and if he took care of your sins... It's not a guessing game anymore. Blessed assurance. You and I can know that Christ's payment has completely covered our sin. No waiting to find out what happens. It's already happened. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, right? It's a picture of eternity. We get to live in that now. It's only a shadow. All the enjoyment of being around the people of God, all the freedom that comes with knowing that sin has been lifted as a weight off of your shoulders, all those things, enjoy them, relish them, sit in them, live in them, but it's only, gonna, it's only a small taste of what's going to come in glory divine forever. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Acts 4.12 tells us this. Remember this? this? is going way back, right? It's when we were studying Acts. Acts 4.12. There is no other name in heaven by which men can be saved. Just one. It's Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us this. There is one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. Nobody else gets to go before the Father on your behalf. 
just Jesus. And thank God that he's the one mediating for us, right? He's the one standing on our behalf in front of the Father. I'm not picking anybody else, that's for sure. There's one mediator between God and man. John 11.25 tells us, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life forever. In John 14.6, Jesus says very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's it. No man comes to the Father. Nobody's walking into that throne room under their own pretenses. You be gone before you hit the door. No man comes to the Father but by me. How good and gracious and overwhelming is the assurance we have because of the blood of Christ. Don't let it be something that seems like some minuscule 6 or 10 or 28 verses in Hebrews chapter 9. This truth changes Literally, everything. Literally everything. All the way down to how we keep track of time. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ, his ascension into the throne room of the Father, standing there on our behalf, it changes everything for us. Let that truth guide your day, guide your rest, guide your sleep, let that blessed assurance free you from everything else that wants to pull you away. And if need be, write down some of the words of that hymn that we just sang. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. How do we know what heaven's going to be like? Because Jesus shows us. Let's thank the Lord for this Truth that, and we get into chapter 10, we're going even deeper here. Chapter 9 is like this recapping of much of what he's been talking about in the book, and then the end, these sections 23 to 28 that we talked about today, is the, the very clear declaration of the truth that he's been talking about in chapter 10 continues to dig us deeper. Understanding the depth and the breadth of what God has done for us through Jesus is a never-ending well. You're not going to run out of being amazed by Christ's grace to you. So keep digging. Keep going. Because there's one mediator between God and man. There's one name by which men can be saved. There's one way and truth in life. It's Jesus. He's greater than all the rest. Let that change how you think, how you live, how you talk, how you work, how you interact with those around you. Let it change everything. It's the most important thing and the only thing that will mean anything.